Well, let me tell you what I intend to talk about, and we'll sort of see how time allows us to get through it. I've spent the past couple of months, um, I have academic leave this year. It's one of those wonderful uh, moments when you kind of get up and can read a book instead of prepare a lecture for your class. And so I've been trying to think about what the Bush administration has been trying to do in the Middle East since uh, the president came to, to office in um, the beginning of 2001. And the reason I wanted to try to do this is that I, I have felt really from almost the beginning of the Bush administration that this administration looks at the region with a very different set of lenses uh, and is trying to do something that is really quite dramatically different from most of its predecessors. And so I thought I should try to get into a little bit of the background. And as time has come on, gone on, of course, we've had a lot of dramatic things happening on this administration's watch, the reaction to 9-11, the war in Afghanistan against uh, Al-Qaeda, um, Arab-Israeli issues, and the administration's reaction to those, and of course now the war uh, in Iraq and its aftermath. And as I've tried to figure out, as a frequent critic of this administration, what its kind of intellectual reference points are, I've tried to be uh, as fair-minded as I can, and I've tried to puzzle over what it is that has bothered me about this administration, because it's not so much their statement of what they claim their goals are. After all, how can one object to something like a democratic Iraq, even their stated policy on Israel-Palestine, two states living peacefully side by side, all sounds pretty reasonable. Concern about weapons of mass destruction was not irrational, even if it was perhaps misplaced. And yet, I do find that I'm still troubled by the way the administration understands the Middle East, so I want to try to tell you a little bit about how I have gotten to my conclusions and what I think some more sensible approaches are. Now, as we enter the fourth year of the Bush administration, it's clear that uh, this president has made his mark on American foreign policy and especially in the Middle East. How much of this is due to the views and beliefs that he personally brought with him to the presidency? How much of it stems from the influence of his top advisors? And how much of it is a reaction to the events that he has encountered, first and foremost, 9-11? These are the kind of questions that I will try to deal with. And uh, as, since I'm an academic, I make no excuses. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. I have to uh, get through that. But I'll do it a little bit more briefly than I might have if I'd arrived on time. Uh, the end of the Cold War period, which more or less is the late 80s, early 90s, was of course a moment of enormous historic importance that was bound to set off a major debate within the United States over foreign policy. The single most unify important unifying theme in American foreign policy, the need to confront the power of the Soviet Union without provoking World War III, was gone. And along with the dominant worldview, that, that, along with, with its disappearance, was the disappearance of the dominant worldview that placed an emphasis on such concepts as containment, deterrence, diplomacy, and multilateral alliance systems as the preferred way of thinking about most international challenges. These standard policies had often been criticized, but on the whole, they served the United States well, and despite enormous costs that were entailed by the Cold War and some serious blunders along the way, we had prevailed, but no one quite knew what was going to come next in the early 1990s. Now, the first Bush administration and the Clinton administration 
provided a preliminary answer of a kind of pragmatic internationalism. Selective engagement was a frequent slogan. That was their answer to the end of the Cold War order. First great crisis uh, in this post-Cold War period came in the form of Saddam Hussein's clear-cut aggression against Kuwait. And the Bush administration had responded with a forceful but clearly multilateral strategy. The UN was used as it had been designed to be used, and the Bush team, without much dissent, decided to stop short of toppling Saddam's regime, in part because they lacked a clear international mandate to do more than liberate Kuwait. They were also worried, incidentally, that without Saddam, Iraq might descend into a kind of Lebanon-style internal conflict, thereby inviting intervention from Iraq's neighbors. In the aftermath of the Gulf War, Bush and Baker worked energetically to revive Arab-Israeli peace diplomacy, finally managing to get all of the parties to the table for the symbolic launch of the Madrid Peace Conference in fall of 1991. Nothing could better symbolize the continuity of policy from Bush to Clinton than the fact that Clinton asked Dennis Ross and Ed Jurigian, Baker's two top aides on the Middle East, to stay on to guide negotiations between Israel and its Arab neighbors. During the Clinton period, there were debates over issues about policy in the Balkans and elsewhere, but there was a fairly strong bipartisan consensus on Middle East policy. The key elements were an active promotion of Arab-Israeli peace with mixed results, and a stated policy of dual containment initially in the Gulf designed to prevent the emergence of either Iran or Iraq as a dominant regional power. This latter policy, particularly with its implied similarity in the nature of the two regimes, Iran and Iraq, was indeed criticized, and by the end of the Clinton period, there were some moves <coughs> to open a dialogue with Iran, but without much immediate effect. On the whole, Clinton drew on a standard repertoire of diplomacy and containment to pursue policies in the Middle East. Now, when I look back at this period from about 1950, early Cold War, to 2000, the end of the Clinton period, 50 years of American policy in the Middle East, I see that what Clinton and the first Bush administration were trying to do after the Cold War was actually fairly familiar. During much of this 50-year period, presidents had sought to keep the region from falling under Soviet influence, a concern that obviously no longer mattered much after 1990. But in addition, every president had been concerned with things such as the flow of oil from the region at reasonable prices. This was a kind of Goldilocks guideline. We didn't want prices to be either too high or too low. They had to be somehow just right. And finally, every president had felt committed to Israel's basic security, although not always to its policies or conquests. With these goals in mind, presidents had relied on economic and military assistance to various countries in the region, especially Israel, cooperation with allies and the United Nations, remember things like UN Resolution 242 and its role, occasional displays of force, Lebanon 1958, the October 1973 airlift, Operation Desert Storm in 1991, covert operations, the Mossadegh affair and pressures on Syria in 1957 come to mind, and lots of diplomacy, a whole series of initiatives and plans and so forth, some of them more successful than others. Now, biggest success in that 50-year period, this is the period right up to the current administration, I think came with Egypt's realignment from being stalwartly 
in the Soviet camp in the 1950s and 60s to being resolutely pro-American by the end of the 1970s. Along the way, Egypt made peace with Israel, dramatically changing the nature of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Just as the United States was congratulating itself on this achievement, however, it also suffered one of its biggest setbacks, the overthrow of the Shah of Iran's regime by a militantly anti-American Islamic government. Still, by the end of the 1990s, the record did not look too bad in terms of traditional American interests. The Soviets had been effectively dealt with. Israel was strong, seemingly secure, and quite prosperous, and peace with its neighbors seemed like just a matter of time. And the price of oil, after having exploded in the 1970s, had settled down in the range of $16 to $18 a barrel, just about the average price in real terms for oil for the entire period since World War II. The few regimes that were still hostile <clears throat> to the United States, Iran, Iraq, and Libya, were problems, but did not seem to constitute major threats, at least not to the Clinton administration. Iraq was contained, although at a heavy cost to its civilian population. Iran was in the midst of an internal debate that the moderates seemed to be win winning. Remember, Khatami had been overwhelmingly elected in 1997, and Libya was abandoning its ties to terrorism and renouncing its Arabism altogether. Despite the many mistakes that American policy had committed in the Middle East during this 50-year period, there were some notable successes. The balance sheet did not look so bad, especially compared to Southeast or East Asia, where the cost in lives and treasure from the wars in Korea and Vietnam had been immense. During the entire 50-year period I'm describing, 1950 to 2000, about 1,000 Americans lost their lives in Middle East-related violence, an average of about 20 per year. And the cost of American policy in the region, roughly assessed, was about 4 to $5 billion per year in constant dollars. Now, let's turn to the last three years. We're immediately struck by what a dramatic difference in policy and in costs we see. In 2001 to 2003, first three years of the Bush administration, about 3,600 Americans <coughs> lost their lives in Middle East-related violence, more each year on average than in the entire previous 50 years. And the cost of conducting our policy has gone up by a factor of at least 20. And oil today costs about twice as much per barrel as it did in constant dollar terms in the mid-1990s. Now, the primary reason for this dramatic change is, of course, 9-11 and its aftermath. And I don't mean to imply that this is all the result of the Bush administration's policies, but I do want to underscore the point that we are in an unprecedented period when Middle East policy is at the top of the American agenda and the stakes and costs are truly enormous. Now, in every previous administration that I've studied, I've tried to look at three areas to understand how policy gets made. First, I've tried to look at the mind of the president his preconceptions, beliefs, reference points, <clears throat> and ideology. Presidents and their views of the world do matter. Second, whom do they listen to, and what do these people think? No president knows enough or has the depth of experience to feel confident making policy all on his own in a region like the Middle East. The issues are complex, the region is usually unfamiliar to them, and the domestic political consequences of decisions can be far-reaching. So presidents always look to a small group of advisors for ideas and options and assessments. Who these people are and what they think also matters. 
Third, all presidents and their advisors experience a kind of learning curve, whereby their initial judgments are tempered by real-world experience. One's preconceptions will eventually be challenged by a heavy dose of reality, and there will be mid-course corrections. It always happens at some point, usually after going down a number of blind alleys. Some foreign policy teams are better at making these mid-course corrections than others. Some are more pragmatic, some more rigid, but none can be oblivious to the outside world for long. Now, let's take a look first at what we know of George W. Bush's core beliefs as they relate to foreign affairs at the time he becomes president. First, it's striking how he is not like his father, who came from a relatively conservative, internationalist, pragmatic background. There's little evidence that Bush, too, spent a lot of time before becoming president thinking about or studying foreign policy. In this sense, he was more like Reagan than Nixon or his own father. And even Carter and Clinton, also governors before becoming president and men without much foreign policy background, had consciously set out to educate themselves about foreign affairs in the years preceding their campaign for the White House. But Bush did have strong views and convictions, some stemming quite possibly from his role in his father's failed re-election bid in 1992. Bush's personal convictions seemed to stem from a generally conservative view of the world. The world was a dangerous place. The U.S. had to be prepared to defend itself and its values. It could not allow itself to be hemmed in by multilateral, multinational institutions or treaties or alliances if those worked against American interests. All of this was pretty standard conservative fare. But Bush also seemed to have a streak of self-righteousness, of certainty, that may have come from his religious beliefs. He is a born-again Christian who turned his own life around in his 40s. Bush also seems to have picked up managerial techniques consistent with being a CEO who makes big decisions quickly and delegates considerable authority to strong people around him. He does not believe in spending a lot of time analyzing problems, reading background papers, or listening to lengthy, inconclusive debates. He prides himself on being decisive just the opposite of the Clinton White House, which sometimes seemed to resemble a graduate school seminar. I happen to like graduate school seminars, but they don't always reach clear-cut conclusions. In the debates with Al Gore during the campaign in 2000, Bush had acquitted himself fairly well, uh, despite some embarrassing gaps in his factual knowledge. He did, however, strike a tone that now seems strange. He spoke of adopting a humble foreign policy, that would combine power with modesty, thereby winning friends abroad. He also scorned the concept of nation building, seeming to imply that each developing country would have to fend essentially for itself. As for his views on the Middle East, there was little to go on. Many Arabs and some Israelis thought that he might follow in his father's footsteps, which encouraged the former and depressed the latter. Soon they were to realize that he was not his father's son as far as the Middle East was concerned. Now, what about Bush's closest advisors? Do they share his views or did they push him in different directions? On the foreign policy front, Bush has assembled a diverse team of fairly strong personalities. On the moderate internationalist wing is Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, and his views are fairly easy to discern. He's written and spoken enough so that we get a fairly clear picture of a cautious, moderate man who favors diplomacy, 
but is willing to use force when necessary, preferably with overwhelming force if it comes to the actual use of it. But remember that Powell at one point articulated a set of principles for the use of force that are quite different from those now in vogue in Washington. While very popular with his State Department colleagues, Powell often seems to be a lonely voice within a generally hawkish administration. On occasions, he seems to get support from National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, whose conservative views seem to have hardened in recent years. Writing in January-February 2000 issue of Foreign Affairs, she said about, quote, rogue regimes, such as Iraq and North Korea, the following. This is a quote. These regimes are living on borrowed time, so there is no, there need be no sense of panic about them. Rather, the first line of defense should be a clear and classical statement of deterrence. If they do acquire weapons of mass destruction, their weapons will be unusable because any attempt to use them will bring national obliteration. Two of the most influential and experienced men in Bush's inner circle are Vice President Cheney, Richard Cheney, and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. These two close friends have well-established conservative credentials. Cheney was Secretary of Defense for Bush one during the first Gulf War and went along with, but did not appear to strongly support, the decision to stop at the Kuwaiti border. Rumsfeld had been Secretary of Defense in the Ford administration and had earned a reputation for being a tough bureaucratic infighter, the only person that Henry Kissinger said could outmaneuver him in bureaucratic warfare. Both were identified often as hard-headed realists, skeptical of international institutions, treaties, the UN, and convinced that American power must be visible and usable. And finally, one must pay special attention to the ascendance of the so-called neoconservatives in the second ranks of the Bush foreign policy elite. In contrast to the more traditional conservatives, <coughs> who have been skeptical about such grandiose projects as nation-building and democratization, neocons have a streak of Wilsonianism in their views. They're inclined to see the United States as having a mission to not simply establish a balance of power in the world, classical realist view, but also to transform the world. They take ideas and values seriously and have generally come down on the side of active promotion of change. Many are very sympathetic to Israel, especially to its Likud leaders, and radical Islam is perceived by many of them as nearly as dangerous a threat as communism was in the past. They believe in the clash of civilizations without Huntington's cautionary notes about the risks of messianism. The most prominent neocons in the Bush entourage are Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, Undersecretary of Defense Douglas Fife, Louis Libby in the Vice President's Office, and more recently, Elliot Abrams on the National Security Council staff in charge of Middle Eastern Affairs. While they may disagree over details of the neocon agenda, they all adopted a strong position on the evils of Saddam Hussein's regime and the need for serious action to remove him <coughs> from power. This group, it seems to me, has demonstrated that has, it has had considerable success in moving Bush from his initial conservative views, his humble foreign policy, to the crusade against terrorism and the war in Iraq. Whereas the Clintonites had talked of regime change in Iraq, but done relatively little, the neocons in the Bush camp, as well as Rumsfeld and Cheney, were eager to consider options for ousting Saddam from the earliest days of the administration. Many of the arguments for such a policy had been spelled out in 1996 in a curious memo 
addressed to the new Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, urging, quote, a clean break with the Oslo policy and arguing for the need for an entirely new approach to the Middle East that would include serious pressures for regime change in Syria and Iraq. This was written by a significant portion of the neocons now working for President Bush. A more pointed call for Saddam's removal came in 1998 in a letter to Clinton signed by Abrams, Armitage, Bolton, Khalilzad, Pearl, Rodman, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and Zelik, to mention a few of the more prominent of those who ended up with positions of influence in the Bush administration. Now, we've recently learned that literally on the first day of the Bush administration, January 20th, 2001, the new president and vice president discussed the Middle East in a meeting with outgoing President Clinton at the White House. Clinton reportedly went on at length about how Arafat had let him down. And Arafat was to blame for the failure of the peace talks, which had just more or less collapsed and could not be trusted. Clinton had invested heavily in the peace effort and was understandably disappointed, but his singling out of Arafat was what stuck in the minds of the new president and vice president. A few weeks later, Ariel Sharon was elected prime minister of Israel, and that brought to an end any real chance for progress in negotiations. So from the outset, literally almost day one of the Bush administration, the president seems to have concluded that it would be a waste of time and political capital to get involved in the Arab-Israeli peace process. His personal distaste for Arafat was apparent. On the one occasion when they were in the same room together at the UN, Bush went out of his way to ignore him. So a brief summary of the initial views of the president and his advisors on the Middle East at the outset of the administration would consist of the following points. The United States would not pursue the Clinton policy of active mediation between Israel and the Palestinians. Arafat was not going to be accorded the same degree of attention and legitimacy as he had received in the aftermath of the 1993 Oslo Peace Accords. Iraq and Iran, and possibly Syria, were all viewed as threats, in part because of their programs to develop weapons of mass destruction, and in part because of their hostility to Israel and the United States. But at this point, there was no consensus on what to do about these regimes. Some in the administration favored a more forceful policy toward Iraq in particular, but Powell wanted to pursue the policy of smart sanctions instead, and the president was not ready to overrule him. Surprisingly, the, the problem of terrorism in Osama bin Laden was not prominent on the radar screen of the new Bush administration, despite efforts by the outgoing Clintonites to call attention to the possible threats from this quarter. Few comments by the president or his close associates in the early months of the administration make any mention of the danger of attacks, of terror attacks on American interests or on America itself. On September 10th, 2001, Condoleezza Rice finally got around to ordering that a study be done on Al-Qaeda. <laughs> finally, although there were occasional debates over democratization in the Middle East in academic circles at the time, there seemed to be no deep conviction that this lofty goal could be translated into practical policies. Indeed, one senses that people like Cheney and Rumsfeld would be quite skeptical about this as an explicit goal of American foreign policy. The major turning point for the Bush administration's foreign policy came, obviously, with the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Almost overnight, America was redirected toward the war on terrorism as the administration defined the new threat. 
almost everything else was seen through this new and compelling lens. Some in the administration immediately wanted to take on Saddam Hussein, arguing that he might have had some role in the 9-11 attack. Bush apparently shared this view, but decided to defer action against Iraq for the time being. Even if Saddam was not viewed as directly implicated in 9-11, there was a feeling in some quarters that the United States needed to be seen as reacting strongly to the 9-11 attack on its own territory. Powell won the initial argument, insisting on tackling the Taliban and bin Laden first and only thereafter Iraq. As many expected, the war in Afghanistan was over fairly quickly and with few American casualties. Bin Laden, however, managed to escape and Al-Qaeda managed to reconstitute itself in some form as a loose network of radical groups around the globe. By mid-2002, the administration was ready to address the question of what next in the Middle East after the war against Al-Qaeda. Several ideas were floated. Some said that the president needed to address Israeli-Palestinian issues. Others argued that Saddam should now be dealt with. Some called for political reform and democratization in the region. Others argued that our dependence on Saudi Arabia should be reduced. On the military front, there was a strong case being made for a statement of American strategy that would spell out and justify both preemptive and preventive war. After 9-11, there was considerable discussion of what relationship there might be, if any, between the stalemated Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the anti-American sentiment in the Arab and Islamic world that created a receptive environment for extremists like bin Laden. On the whole, the Bush administration was very reluctant to accept that there might be any relationship between Arab anger over Palestine and support for bin Laden. Instead, bin Laden was seen as one who simply hates what the West represents, its freedoms, its values, its individualism. In short, conflict with terrorists was over values, not policies. Anyone who suggested that part of the strategy for dealing with terrorism should include a vigorous attempt to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict were accused of appeasing blackmailers. Nonetheless, the administration could not entirely ignore the views of many leaders in the Middle East, as well as many European statesmen, all of whom argued that something needed to be done to revive Arab-Israeli peace diplomacy. The logic was not that this would necessarily appease bin Laden and his followers, but it would help to strengthen moderates in the region who would then help to contain the influence of the extremists. So in June 2002, Bush gave a major speech, spelling out his, quote, vision for the Middle East. To say the least, it was ambitious. First, the Palestinians would have to get rid of Arafat and engage in meaningful political reform. They would have to end the terror attacks on Israel. But if they did so, then Israel should accept the legitimacy of a Palestinian state living side by side with Israel. Powell even went on to use the words viable and democratic to describe the future Palestinian state. Israel was urged to stop building settlements and to act so that Palestinians could have some hope for their future. Missing from the speech was any hint of what the United States would support in terms of borders, Jerusalem, refugee claims, all issues that Clinton had addressed in some detail in his final bid to clinch a deal in December 2000. Many of these themes from Bush's speech reappeared in the so-called roadmap, put forward in 2003 with the backing 
of the so-called quartet, the United States, Europe, the United Nations, and Russia. For a brief moment, the plan seemed to focus a certain amount of diplomatic energy. A new Palestinian prime minister, Mahmoud Abbas, made statements condemning violence that were welcomed in Washington. The level of violence actually subsided for a while after an informal truce was called to which the radical Palestinian factions more or less agreed to adhere. But on August 19th, a terror attack, this is 2003, took place in Jerusalem with large numbers of Israeli casualties. And the Americans and Israelis both concluded that the PLO had not been serious about reining in Hamas and Islamic Jihad. The roadmap was soon consigned to the sidelines, along with Prime Minister Abbas, who was replaced by Arafat loyalist Ahmed Kurey or Abu Alaa. In brief, the experience of trying to deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict had led the Bush administration right back to where it had begun, a skeptical, do-nothing stance that would perhaps serve Bush well with important constituencies during the 2004 re-election campaign, but would do nothing to advance the search for peace. Iraq was another matter altogether. By mid-2002, the argument for war against Iraq was building within the administration. For the president, the main concern seemed to be the possibility that Saddam Hussein, if left in power, might someday in the future develop weapons of mass destruction. Chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons were always lumped together despite their quite different qualities. And that, there, that these weapons might someday be transferred to an undeterrable group like Al-Qaeda. The problem with this hypothesis was that it was only a hypothesis. And to take the country to war on such a basis would be unprecedented and risky. It was clear that Saddam had in the past developed and used chemical weapons. He had worked on nuclear programs in the 1980s, but no one seemed sure if an active program still existed. And biological weapons programs have been underway in the past as well. UN inspectors had been in Iraq looking for such banned weapons from 1991 to 1998, but had then been forced to withdraw. No one was quite sure what had happened since then. There was also a minority view that Saddam had developed links to Al-Qaeda and might have somehow been responsible for 9-11. Most analysts at CIA and in the State Department were skeptical of this view, but its proponents launched a sharp attack on both agencies, arguing that those who had failed to foresee 9-11 should not be listened to. Another reason to try to oust Saddam Hussein that had a following in the administration was that he was a particularly ruthless and reckless leader. His human rights record was appalling. Few would regret his passing, and many Iraqis would be grateful. In fact, a liberated Iraq might become a useful American ally, providing a substitute for dependence on Saudi Arabia, where the presence of American troops was a perennial source of tension. The problem with this argument was that there was no basis in international law for going to war simply because the regime was repressive. The UN would be very unlikely to give its blessing to such an operation, so the US would have to act entirely on its own, or nearly so. The stronger rationale for war would be that Iraq was in violation of UN resolutions, calling it to get to rid itself of its weapons of mass destruction and stockpiles. Now, before the war in Iraq, many in the administration had been convinced that American troops would be met by joyous Iraqi crowds. And many Iraqis were indeed happy to be free of Saddam's tyranny, especially in the Shi'i South and Kurdish North. But the aftermath of the war 
as we all know by now, has turned out to be much more complex than envisaged by the Hawks and the administration. And the search for weapons of mass destruction and for links to Al-Qaeda has thus far been essentially in vain. Much of the detailed pre-war planning that had been conducted <coughs> by the State Department was deliberately ignored by the Pentagon. Problems of continuing armed resistance became severe in the latter part of 2003, and even the capture of Saddam Hussein in mid-December did not solve all of those problems. Indeed, the new issue of satisfying the urgent demand of the Shi for assurances that their position in the new Iraq will be respected has become <clears throat> a significant challenge, as we've seen in the last few days. As a re result of these experiences, the Bush administration does seem to be adjusting some aspects of its Iraq policy. First, there seems to be a real realization that progress toward real democracy in Iraq may well be more difficult than imagined. A post-Saddam Iraq may also be more Islamic and less pro-American than many in Washington had originally hoped. Also, the ostensible rationale for the war, the presence of weapons of mass destruction, was almost certainly not going to look very convincing and was gradually being replaced <coughs> by a rationale rooted more in the value of removing a rogue regime and in pursuing the global undefined war on terror. By early 2004, the administration was less prone to talk of the remaining members of the axis of evil the sweeping visions of <coughs> regime change in the Middle East that would begin in Baghdad and end in Riyadh or Cairo were no longer much in vogue. A more modest agenda of stabilizing Iraq, turning over formal sovereignty by mid-year, and getting the president re-elected seemed to be high on the agenda instead. <coughs> now, let me return to the title of my talk, which is, Does Bush Have a Strategy for the Middle East, and Can It Work? I would argue that the president did develop a very strong set of views about the region, especially after 9-11. They led him, as they would have led almost any president, to the war in Afghanistan and the fight against al-Qaeda. Iraq, however, was a war of choice, motivated in part by a desire to put American power on display, and in part by a fear of what might happen in the future if Saddam was left unchecked. There was a great deal of hope invested in the Iraq project hoped that the region could be reformed through the application of power. But there was remarkably little in the way of strategic planning. And this is where I begin to conclude that the grand strategy for the region was poorly thought through. Not only did the Iraq project begin to look shaky soon after the fall of Baghdad, there had been a great deal of wishful thinking built into the plan, but also the notion that the road to Baghdad would open the way to Israeli-Palestinian peace something apparently genuinely believed by some of the administration was an example of the triumph of hope over experience. Bush Jr., unlike his father, was not short on the vision thing, as they say, but he and his colleagues could be accused of having an excess of vision combined with an inadequate dose of realism. Good strategy, after all, involves setting attainable goals and mobilizing the means needed to achieve them. It anticipates complex interactions, provides for uncertainty, takes timing and costs seriously, and assesses politi political feasibility. It tries to factor in indirect effects, unanticipated consequences, the likely reactions of others. In short, good strategic thinking is complex, difficult, demanding. It needs to combine clear goals with a good understanding of reality. By these standards, Bush has failed. He set high goals, perhaps unachievable ones, and paid too little attention 
to what would really be required to achieve them. For conservatives, he and his advisors turned out to be remarkably radical and optimistic in their vision of the Middle East. So as I try to think of what I've learned from most of a lifetime of studying this region, it might be useful to American policymakers. I come up with a short list of the following key points. First, be wary of grand plans to remake the Middle East. Change will come, but not always in the way that we hope or expect. An externally applied force tends to be resisted. Be suspicious of domino theories. Many thought that when Nasser's Egypt and Syria united in 1958, this was be the beginning of a wave of Arab unity. It wasn't. When the Islamic Republic came to power in Tehran in 1979, many expected a whole series of similar Islamic revolutions. They didn't happen. When Egypt made peace with Israel, some expected that others would immediately follow. They didn't. And now with Iraq, we should not immediately expect that there will be a virtuous domino theory as optimists hope. Dominoes may indeed fall, but not in a straight line, and some may simply not fall at all. Third, you may try to ignore the Israel-Palestine conflict, but it will eventually force its way back to center stage. And the American image in the Arab world is more affected by this single issue than any other. Fourth, be wary of sloppy language. It can lead to bad policy. Phrases such as the axis of evil, the war on terrorism, rogue states, even weapons of mass destruction can be very mis misleading. The problem posed by Iran are not the problems posed by Iran are not the same as those posed by Iraq. Bin Laden's threat to the United States is clear, but other militant groups that use terror, like Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah, should not always be lumped into the same category. Nuclear weapons in the Middle East constitute a threat that is vastly more dangerous than that posed by chemical and biological weapons. Good policy, in short, requires an ability to make distinctions where they exist. Fifth point, if we're going to succeed with our plans in the region, we will need both regional partners and international allies. The United Nations, as we are now rediscovering, can play a useful role in enhancing international legitimacy. To win their cooperation, these allies must be treated with respect. Their views must be given a fair hearing. Displays of power alone will not lead to solid alliances. Sixth, democracy and Islam can go together, as the president has correctly said, but the process of democratization is likely to take time. It cannot be rushed to fit the American electoral calendar, and we cannot be the ones who impose it. As with other administrations that have aimed high and had to readjust policies in the face of stubborn Middle East realities, we may well see a more realistic approach to Iraq emerge in coming months. But so far, there is no hint that a more realistic and balanced view of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is on the horizon. Nor is it clear that the bold call for democratization of the region will be pursued vigorously if and when it becomes clear that democracy will not always coincide with pro-American regimes. It is easy to see the shortcomings of regimes such as those in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. It is much harder to see that their likely replacements will be more sympathetic to the United States. The war on terror will doubtless remain the key theme for Bush's foreign policy. And like other diffuse wars on crime, drugs, poverty, it will be hard to know on any given day if we're making headway or simply treading water. It will be years before we will be able to judge with any confidence whether the Iraqi project has worked out well from the standpoint of American interests. 
and, as importantly, whether Iraqis are satisfied with the new order that they live with. The Iraq project, suitably revised, may turn out for the better, but at very great cost. But it will also bring into play a whole new complex set of issues as the Shi of the Gulf region seek to assert their preeminence. Finally, it's hard to imagine that the United States can continue indefinitely to turn its back on the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. It may be true that previous administrations paid too much attention to this arena and not enough to other parts of the Middle East. Clinton was accused of that. But by consigning this conflict to the back burner, the United States is sowing the seeds for future problems. If Bush is reelected, he will need to look again at this issue as part of whatever remains of his grand design for the Middle East. And let us hope that then his learning curve will be impressively steep. That's what I came to say. Thank you.